Um, good morning. Okay, one of the, the neat experiences of my life is to get to go see uh, our daughters that are in college. Uh, we have two daughters that are in college, two that are, are at home. And the two that are in college go to college in Malibu, California at Pepperdine. And this is, this is it. It's spectacular. I mean, we're moving these kids. I say it's spectacular. It's, I, I come from Lubbock, okay? <laughs> we've, we've got half of what they've got in Malibu. Ours is the sand half. Malibu adds water to that sand. Um, but uh, 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 it's, it's always fun to go there because uh, uh, you know, I, our daughter Gracie is home this week. She got in Friday morning. And from her dorm room, as we moved her in, she could see the ocean. And that just seems pathetic. <laughs> but it's, it was, it's that way. And I can't help but wonder as I go there. I had a chance to take some friends there about uh, a month and a half ago. We went in to, for a meeting with, uh, that I had. And they were making me stop the car every 30 feet so they could take pictures out the window. And I was thinking, I think the first time I went, it was that pretty. Well, now, it has not changed in its beauty. It's, it's as pretty as it was the first time I went. But the more you go, dare I say you kind of get used to it? Does that, have you found things become familiar to you the more time you spend with them in something that's incredibly beautiful or incredibly ornate or incredibly wonderful becomes much more familiar and you forget how special or spectacular it might be. And I ask you that because I, I think gradually as things disappear, we need to bring them back into some measure of focus. And so the question I pose to you as we start this week's lesson on Paul is, does the word salvation get so overused that any of us ever become numb to it? Oh, I'm saved. Don't you want to be saved? Are you saved? Salvation. It's a word that's inherent. It's built into the structure of who we are as, as a church and as Christians. And, and it's one where I get concerned sometimes that we lose track of how spectacular it is because we kind of just start growing numb to it and and it's it just gets kind of fuzzy around the edges and it gets kind of um if you ever listen to the u2 song about a decade or so ago i feel numb and and bono sings that in this false set of voice while edge is just don't do this 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 and just this mantra chanting and and i think sometimes salvation becomes that way for us as a word and as a concept, are you saved? Well, what does that mean? Well, that, well, I want us to take a step back. Because when Paul's writing the New Testament, these are fresh words. These are fresh concepts. It's not something that has 2,000 years of theological history, living it, dwelling in it, and debating it. And I almost, uh, envy's not the right word, I get excited for people who aren't so inundated with our Christian tradition that salvation is just another word to them. 
but who truly sit there and ask, you know, what is it? You know, let's look at it fresh. Let's look at it anew. That's our goal this morning as we consider the way Paul taught theology on salvation. Now, salvation, if we're going to use expensive seminary words, we're studying a branch of theology called soteriology. Soteriology. You will never use that word if you don't do it now. Say it with me. Soteriology. Soteriology. We know the ology part from the Greek word logos means study of, right? So anthropology, study of anthropos, Greek for man. Um, Psychology, study of the psyche, Greek for the mind. Um, uh, Or the the spirit or the soul, I guess is better. Um, uh, uh, Any number, ecclesiology, study of ecclesia, the church. In theology, there's soteriology, which is the subject or the study of sotery. Sotery. Now, sotery is a Greek word. It's, it's an irregular word in the Greek, so you may see it as sozo or soteria. But Paul, when Paul's writing and thinking about soteria, he's using a Greek word. We can look it up in the Greek dictionary. I brought a Greek dictionary for us today. This is going to be a hands-on class. We're going to use the Elmo a lot. This is a small version of a really big Greek dictionary. Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon. And the small version allows us to look up words like sozo, which is where soteriology comes from. Soteria is a form of it. And here it is. And I know what you're saying. That looks like Greek to me. Well, it is Greek to you. This is sozo. Those W's, first of all, that O with a tail is an S. That W is an O. And then we have a Z and then an O. Or it comes in different forms like soteria. But what does it mean? It means, are we on screen? Yes. It means to save, to keep, to keep alive, to preserve, to be saved, to keep safe, to preserve, to keep in mind or remember, to keep. It means to rescue. That's down, ah, rescue. Sozo, soteriology. It means these things. So what we have with soteriology is we have, if we go to the Greek, a number of different things. We have deliverance. We have preservation. We have salvation. Let's take a step back for a minute. Ultimately, I want to warn you, this is the word Paul uses for salvation. When Paul writes about salvation, he's writing about being delivered. He's writing about being preserved. He's writing about being saved. And I want to find some other passages in our Bibles that use this Greek word so that we get a fuller flavor for what Paul meant when he used it. Here are two passages from Paul. He talks about how we're saved, sozo, soteria. Saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. We're delivered from the wrath of God. We're preserved from the wrath of God. We're set free from the wrath of God. Or he says we're saved, sozo, soteria. 
We're saved by grace through faith. We've been delivered. We've been preserved. We've been set free. We've been saved by grace through faith. Here's another passage in the Bible where the word is used. You remember how people, there was a woman who wanted to touch the hem of Jesus' garment because she was bleeding and nothing had been able to stop her bleeding. And she touches the hem of Jesus' garment and she's healed. Matthew tells it to us this way, or I mean Mark. He says, as many as touched the hem of Jesus' garment were made well. The word for made well? Sozo. They were saved. We think of salvation only in terms of where are you going to spend eternity. But the Greek concept of salvation is a broader one. It's one of healing. It's, it's, it is the word very often used for healing in the Bible. It's used in some other senses. Let's get a fuller set. This is Paul. You remember Paul was brought before Felix, the governor, for his trial. But before Paul got to Felix for the trial, there was an ambush set up by his enemies who were trying to kill Paul. And so soldiers were sent, and the soldiers were sent to bring Paul safely to Felix. The word safe? Sozo. Saved. To bring Paul safely. To get him there without getting hurt. If Paul had gone to the Barnes and Noble, down the street from where he was, he could have pulled off a book by a near contemporary of Paul's named Plutarch. And I was reading some Plutarch, getting ready for this lesson, to see how Plutarch, a contemporary of Paul, used this word, sozo, soteria, saved. And there's an interesting story about a woman who falls off a boat, and she is in the middle of the sea, and she's drowning. And a dolphin comes up, Grabs hold of her, she hold of the dolphin, and the dolphin swims her to shore. And Plutarch says she was saved, sozo, by the dolphin. Same concept. You, you see within this word, this idea that God is going to deliver out of danger, uh, preserve from being harmed from danger. God is going to save, heal from sickness protect and deliver that's the idea behind the greek word saved this is the greek word that matthew used when saying that the angel appeared to joseph who would be the earthly father of jesus and said mary's pregnant she's going to bear a child you shall call his name jesus which in hebrew is what we'd call joshua means the lord saves you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He's not delivering us from drowning water. He's not saving us from a, 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 a wound that won't heal of blood. He's going to save, deliver, rescue, preserve us from our sins. Now, it's within this framework that Paul writes of salvation being through the grace of God. 
And so as we look at Paul's teaching on salvation this week and into next week, we're going to look at some different metaphors Paul uses. One of the things when you teach that, at least when I teach that I try to do, whether it's in here or whether I'm teaching in a courtroom, is I try to come up with some parallels or some metaphors or some illustrations or some stories. Dr. Bob's one of the best people I know for that, and he is constantly pushing me and, and our team. Okay, what's an analogy? What's an analogy? What's something that will help anchor it into people's brains? Because we don't learn abstract ideas too well. And the easiest way to learn an abstract idea is to make it tied into something we already know. And so this is why metaphors are very useful as a teaching technique. And Paul does it. Paul says, our salvation is by the cross of Christ, by the grace of God. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He delivered us from the wrath of God. He saved us by his grace. But then Paul goes further and he says, let me tell you some metaphors. And he'll use the metaphor justified. You have been justified. Have you heard that? We've heard that. Reckoned reckoned think of a day of reckoning reckoned adopted and paul's real specific and we'll get into adoption at some point a little bit more thoroughly because paul says you're not just adopted you're adopted as a male son including you women come for that one <laughs> reconciled he uses this word he uses the word redeemed which is a word that comes out of the slave trade he uses the word propitiated, which is a word that comes out of the, 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 the sacrificial system of priests. And he uses the term new creation. All of these are metaphors. Today we're going to look at two of them. We're going to do justified and we're going to do reconciled. Those are the two. Justified is where we start. Do you recognize that car? It's my sister here. She's not coming back because I pointed out she was older than me last week. <laughs> Being older than me, she got the first car. And she saved and saved and saved and got a really good discount on this little MG midget used. And we figured out why she got a real good discount on it. It, um, it didn't work. But <laughs> one, day she, one day that it decided to work, she let me take it to school. And I took it to school. And <laughs> Constable Hickman, do you recognize that fella? I'm not sure he's one of yours, but he was sitting right outside Coronado High School in Lubbock, Texas. And he gave me a ticket. And I was really mad. First of all, it wasn't my fault. Okay? <laughs> it wasn't. Okay, look, look, look. Here's, here's what we got here, okay? This is the road. Here's the school. Okay? Now, it's got the little dots there. Okay? We're not in England, so you drive this way and you drive that way. The car, the little busted MG midget, is parked on the side of the road like this in that direction. Does that make sense? And so what do I do? Well, I have to go from here, right? But I'm parked right there. So I have no choice but to pull immediately and go like that. And 
little Johnny policeman writes me a ticket for driving the wrong way on the street. And I said to him, I said, I didn't drive the wrong way. I was, I turned. I turned like you would be pulling out of a driveway. And he says, well, you couldn't have gotten the car there unless you'd driven the wrong way. I said, agreed. How do you know I put the car there? I said, who needed to get the tickets, whoever parked this fool car, not me. And he says, well, you can go argue with the judge. So I did. I was a junior in high school, and I went to court because I was going to cross-examine that cop on the stand, and I was getting out of this ticket. So here I am, a junior in high school. My dad goes with me, I think for humor's sake, maybe to bail me out of jail in case things went awry. I, was, um, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer that early. I was primed and ready. Judge says, uh, calling out the docket, they reached my case. And uh, he says, are you ready? And I said, you better believe it. And he said, well, do you want to take a plea? And I said, no, sir. And he said, well, what do you want? I said, I want a trial. He said, do you want a jury trial or a bench trial? I said, I'll do it in front of you, your honor. I thought it was easier to persuade one than 12. <laughs> Turns out it's not. Um, <laughs> so, so I said, to, uh, he said, well, I guess we'll start. So the prosecutor calls the police officer. Police officer takes the stand. What happened? That guy there, he drove the wrong way on the road. Your turn, Mr. Lanier, to cross-examine. So I start cross-examining. I've got the chalkboard. I'm drawing it. I'm going at the guy. Finally, after about five minutes, the judge says, uh, says um, come here. So I go up to the bench. He says, look. You probably didn't do anything wrong. But the police officer's in my court all the time. I got to take care of him too, or he'll quit coming in here to testify. You got me between a rock and a hard place. And I said, What are you telling me? He said, You should have gotten a jury. And I said, Is it too late? I said, Is it too late? He says, Yes, it is. I said, So what are you telling me? He said, I'm telling you. I'll erase your ticket if you'll agree to take defensive driving. Which evidently, I could have done at the beginning. I have a right to, and I didn't know that because I hadn't been to law school yet. <laughs> but I felt vindicated when he said that. I stuck my hand out there to shake his hand say, deal. And evidently, you don't do that either. <laughs> he looked at my hand and said, let's just announce it on the record. So I went back and sat down. Now... I wanted to be justified by the judge. I wanted that judge to say not guilty. I wanted that. I wanted to hear those words. Not guilty. Those are court words. You hear not guilty, you know you're talking court, don't you? By the way, I just saw the riddles. And I forgot to say this. We are going to Israel. We're going to put this on the class website. If you listen on the internet or something like that, even if you don't go to church here, you want to go to our, Israel with our class, we're going September 28th through October 10th. Okay, that's a commercial. Now, I hadn't been to law school yet. I'd seen some TV shows. I wanted that not guilty. 
I'll tell you who had more familiarity with courts at that time than, than I did. That was the Apostle Paul. Paul knew his court system firsthand. You go back and look at how many times that guy got called into court. And it wasn't over little things like driving the wrong side of the street where you're going to get a $50 fine and your insurance is going to go up. It was like serious stuff. Paul gets dragged into court in Philippi and he gets thrown in jail. After they beat him and whip him without even recognizing his citizenship rights not to be whipped. Paul, in Acts 17, the very next chapter, he, uh, his buddies have to pay a fine to keep from getting in trouble in Thessalonica because of what Paul was preaching. You go back to the next chapter, and in Corinth, he gets in more legal trouble. And he gets hauled in front of Gallio, the, the, the proconsul for the area, who says, hey, King's X, man, y'all are fussing about Jewish law. Y'all go fight about that somewhere else. This is a serious court. Paul, in Acts 22 to 23, gets tried in front of a, a Jerusalem, a, a Jewish tribunal. And then, after he gets in trouble there, he gets hauled over to Caesarea, where he gets tried before the governor Felix. And if that's not enough, after that he appeals to Rome, to the emperor, to Caesar, to go be tried in Caesar's courts. Paul knew his courtroom. Now, some of you, I'm looking out, I'm seeing Ken and some other lawyers, Mike and some others. And, and, and you know, one of the things we learn in law school are all of these legal words. We know what, what these legal words are, ideally. Well, the Greek and Roman culture of Paul's day had their legal words as well. Courtroom words, if you will. And justified was one of them. It was a word that belonged in the court system. It was a legal term. Dikaio in the Greek. I'm, and, and, and what it would mean, let's go back to our trusty Greek dictionary. Dikaio. Look at some of these words built off of dikaio. We've got off dikaio. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Look at this. To go to law. To go to judgment. A judge who decides a cause. To judge a judge to decide. To come to a decision. To plead or speak before the judges. Brought before the judge to be accused. Here's some more words. Some more times it's used in different forms. Same Greek root, different forms. Belonging to to trials. See that? No? I don't either. <laughs> Dikinikos is the word. Ah, here it is. Belonging to trials. Judicial. Skilled in law. Lawyer-like. Oh, that two-headed? That's a different word. De <laughs> if it were two-faced, I might think it was lawyers, but it's not. Okay? Um, Dikospolos. A lawgiver. A judge. Um, if you have a, a, a dicasteridion, a little dicasteridion, that's a little court. Little court of justice. Um, dikaio, look at the word here. This is a word that, this is a form Paul uses. To make right, to think right, to judge, to condemn, to punish, to make just, bold, guiltless, justify. These are the words that Paul is, uh, is used, are, these are the words that Paul Paul's using these words. 
from dikaio. He's using courtroom terminology. These are words that belong in a court. Dikaio, as Paul uses it, means not guilty. The judge has pronounced the sentence, not guilty. It's a great sentence. It's what we want to hear. And so if we remember that we're dealing here with a word that is um, a legal word, then it makes some of these passages of Scripture make a little more sense. Now let me tell you what the translators do. They have to jump between two of our words. They jump between the word justice and the word righteousness. Those are two English words, but they're, they're translating the same Greek word. It's just there's not a noun for uh, I mean, we have trouble with English. It doesn't work well. So we're going to go to some scriptures, but to make sure they fit on the screen, I've run Xeroxed copies off. Look, for example, at Romans 3.1. In Romans 3.1, Paul, or 3.10, Paul writes, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. Now here's Paul, he's driving at this point. We've already charged that all, Jews and Greeks, everybody's under sin. No one is righteous. There's not anyone who is, and that's our word right there, dikaio. Nobody is truly not guilty. You can't find a human being who has lived exactly the way God would live in your shoes. I don't care how good you are. You give me the best guy out there. Give me five minutes. And I'll either get you agreeing you sinned, or I'll get you lying through your teeth, which will be another sin. <laughs> don't tell me that there's not someone in here who hasn't told a lie. Don't tell me there's not someone in here who hasn't acted selfishly. I'm leaving out the big ones about all you murdering adulterers. I'm just talking about the selfish liars. Nobody's got God's righteousness. If you think you are not guilty, if you think you have God's righteousness, then look closer at God. Because we don't. Now, I've got some good people in here. I got some people who, honestly, are pretty good. I can remember phases in my life where I would go to sleep at night. And God, I know I'm supposed to ask you to forgive me of my sins, but I can't figure any I did today. Okay, well, I wasn't a bad kid for thinking that. I wasn't just some prideful, arrogant kid. I just was thinking in terms of the biggies. You know, and I avoided the biggies. But selfishness? I, I don't know. I brought Becky flowers the other day. Doesn't that sound selfless? You want to know why I brought her flowers? <laughs> so Paul says that, that nobody is righteous. <laughs> I haven't told her yet why I brought her flowers. I have to keep it kind of quiet. I'm, it'll take a couple more flowers before that one comes out. Um, but nobody is righteous. Nobody is deserving of a not guilty. 
not guilty. Nobody, nobody on their own because we all have guilt. So where does the judge's decree of not guilty come in? Well, Paul says in Romans 1, 17, he said, or starting with 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel is Jesus' death on our behalf. I'm not ashamed that Jesus died on our behalf. That's God's power for salvation, sozo, soteria, deliverance, protection, that's the healing. That's God's power to save everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Greek. For in the gospel, in the death of Christ for our sins, the righteousness, that word right there, the not guilty, the not guilty of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the not guilty will live by faith. It's faith. It's trusting God. That's where the not guilty comes in. The not guilty doesn't come in because you or I earned a not guilty. We can't earn a not guilty from the judge. It can't happen. See what I mean? We need to see that word righteousness and we think of righteousness in the English sense. We think of it as how personally good we're doing. But for Paul, it's, it, it contains that, but only in the sense of you're getting a declaration from God that you're not guilty. And you're not getting that declaration of not guilty because you're really that good. You're putting on the clothes of Jesus Christ who really wasn't guilty. And you look good in those clothes. Paul says in Galatians, as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And he means it like a garment. That outward showing of an inward faith, is, it's, it's a garment. And you, 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 you have visible there in another living metaphor. An immersion into Christ's righteousness and who He is. And so it's not that you quit sinning. It's not that all of a sudden you became perfect. It's not that all of a sudden you truly are not guilty because of your deeds. It's that you're wearing the not guilty Jesus. And you look good in it. And it comes in all sizes. And it doesn't cost you anything. It cost him everything. This is the same word Paul uses in Romans 3. 21 through 26. Look at this passage. But now. Now God's not guilty. The not guilty of God. The decree of the judge has been manifested apart from the law. Not because you got a not guilty under the law. Under the law, you're guilty. But apart from the law, you've got a not guilty. This not guilty of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Because there is no distinction. For 
everyone has sinned. Everyone's fallen short of God's glory. But everyone is, and this justified, it's the same word as the righteousness. It's not guilty. Everyone is not guilty by His grace as a gift through the redemption in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Don't worry about that. We'll cover that in another class. This was to show God's own not guiltiness. This was to show that God's not guilty because God already in divine forbearance let some people slide over their sins. God let Abraham slide over his sins. God let David slide over his sins. How can a righteous a God who's not supposed to be guilty himself let someone else slide without a due penalty? How can a judge be a not guilty righteous judge, a true and valid, legitimate, balanced judge with a fair playing field if he cuts slack to people without making them pay the penalty? And so Paul says Christ had to die because God, to show how God has not been unfair. Because God passed over former sins. Jesus died for the sins of Abraham. That's why Abraham's faith could be counted as righteousness. As a not guilty. Because the penalty had already been paid. It was, the death of Christ was to show God's righteousness, God's not guiltiness at the present time so that God might be just, same word, not guilty, so that God might be not guilty and the not, whoops, the not guilty maker, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus had to die for the sins of people who lived before because God can't be a guilty God. And God passed over those sins. Does that make sense? I got more. But if I give you more, we don't get to the next word. Read your lesson. Let's go to the next word. Have you ever been estranged from anybody? I worked for a gentleman one time. I'd been his Sunday school teacher. He was a good friend of mine, and I worked for him. And I left his employ, and I went to work on my own. And I didn't do it well. I, I wasn't mature in the way I left, maybe. And he didn't handle it well. And, and there was a great estrangement from me and him. He wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't have anything to do with me. And he did not wish me well. I couldn't fix that. I tried, but I couldn't fix it. He wasn't interested in me fixing it. And a couple of years ago, um, a friend of mine who, who came to know Jesus, a mutual friend of ours, said to me, I want you to go eat lunch with me. I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to eat lunch with so-and-so, my old friend turned enemy. And I said, that's not a real safe place for me to be. And he said, uh, come on. I said, does he know we're coming? He said, yes, he knows we're coming. And I said, and he's going to be there? He said, yeah, he's going to be there. Well, we came. Um, I was very nervous. I was on my best behavior. Um, 
I asked him if he wanted some iced tea, a refill of his iced tea. He said yes. I took his cup that had beans in it and went and refilled it with tea. <laughs> Same styrofoam cups. I just wasn't paying attention. I was trying so hard. It's become a perennial joke. Don't send Lanier for tea because he puts too much beans in it. <laughs> um, but we reconciled. He's now a very, very close friend of mine. We talk almost daily. And the last couple of years has taken our friendship to a level that it had never been before. And I'm thankful to God for that reconciliation. Fifteen long years in the making. But I'm thankful. And I bring that up because Paul uses a relationship word to talk about our salvation. He uses the word reconciled which is a social term in the Greek, just as it is. Katalage in the Greek, uh, we'll leave it alone. It means to reestablish a broken relationship. To reestablish a broken relationship. Now, what was broken? What was broken? Our relationship with God was broken. Think about it. In the beginning, he walks in the garden and he talks to Adam and Eve. How many of you, absent your salvation, spend time walking with God in a garden talking over the day? If you don't have your relationship with him reconciled, restored, you don't have that closeness. Jesus doesn't come down simply as Lord to put us under his thumb and write a new verse for Mick Jagger. Jesus comes down as a friend to walk and to talk because Jesus comes down to reconcile not a lot of time but look at a couple of these I'm gonna skip that one look at what Paul says in Colossians 1 19 through 20 Paul says for in him in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has restored the relationship with God. In Christ, we talk to God. We walk with God. There is a restored relationship. That's the metaphor Paul wants us to see. That's the metaphor that in Christ, as Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 13 through 16, he says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once, you who once were far off, have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making shalom, peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. When Paul wants to talk about how we are saved he's got a number of metaphors two that we looked at this week 
The metaphor of not guilty in the courtroom. The metaphor of reconciled, a relationship that's been restored. Next week, we've got more metaphors that we'll cover. This week, a couple of points for home. Three. First, Joseph was told to give Jesus the name Jesus. God saves. Give Jesus the name God saves because Jesus is going to save people from their sins. Our sins have divided us from God. They have made us guilty. They have broken the relationship. And in Christ Jesus, the not guilty, the reestablished, reconciled relationship is there. Now, That's the one question we all face. That's the one question that counts. Oh, it's nice to get a... It's nice to get a not guilty on the traffic ticket. But the real one, the real question is, do you know Jesus? Do we understand that in him we have this? That I honestly, I I was talking to a a friend before class who said, I'm worried about one of my kids thinking that that there's got to be some intermediary other than Jesus between her and God. I said, you know, here's maybe some some help for this, but, but we don't need an intermediary. Jesus has reconciled us to God. I walk with him. He is in my heart. Number two, we have been justified by his blood. This is the not guilty. We've got it by the blood of Christ. Not because God changed the rules. God himself is a just judge. But because the rules are, if you do the crime, you got to do the time. And he did the time on our behalf. The penalty was paid. The death and separation from God was paid. Jesus hung alone on the cross. The skies darkened. Jesus descended into hell. And he did it for not just the adultering murderers. He did it for the lying selfish cheats. He did it for everybody. So the penalty's been paid. The question is, do you want to go into court and have Jesus pay your penalty or do you want to pay your own? Time to go. (laughs) Last point for home. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's where it happened. That's what restored the relationship. And we've got a choice. We can be reconciled or we can be alienated. Reconciliation or estrangement. Fellowship or disfellowship. But it will be found in Jesus Christ. Because God is light. And what fellowship does light have with darkness? And so we need to be light. We need the forgiveness. Make sense? Two of Paul's metaphors to talk about salvation. We'll do more next week. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's my prayer that anybody who doesn't uh, 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 walk with you right now, that you'll move in their hearts and convict them and in your time draw them close, that they will be sensitive to that and seek out any of us who might be able to help them.
Um, thank you so much that we have a deliverance, that we are not guilty by the blood of Jesus. I claim that, Lord. I readily confess myself a sinner on my own in need of your blood. And I thank you for that sacrifice. And Lord, I thank you that it reestablishes this relationship so that I can speak to you without being struck dead. So that I can know who you are to appeal to your heart. And I pray for my friends in this room that you will deepen our understanding as we go through this class. Through Jesus Christ we pray, amen.